Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good morning, listeners. This is Sanjay Kumar, your host for New Books Network's channel on South Asian New Books in South Asia. I'm delighted to inform you that today my guest is Professor Chinmay Tumbe, Professor of Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad, India, who will be sharing his thoughts with us about his new book, Moving India, A History of Migration. Over to Professor Chinmay Tumbe. First of all, thank you very much for agreeing to come on uh, the podcast. So on behalf of Thanks a lot. Uh, New, Book, New Books Network, South Asia Channel, I welcome you and wish you a very happy new year. Same to you. Thanks, Chinmay. It was a real pleasure to read your book. Um, and also, as I said uh, in my email, it was a great way to understand migration from another point altogether. So, living in Hungary as a migrant myself for the last nine years, it also brought in a lot of personal insights to me about what it means to be a migrant in Europe today. Mm. So, my first question would be for the listeners who might be from different disciplines, maybe you could please briefly tell us, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, Uh, this book is a culmination of a 10-year research project, but I think more than a research project, it's really been a personal adventure. Uh, and just as you are a migrant in Hungary, uh, I have been a migrant ever since class four when I went to boarding school. Uh, so I, I started uh, as a migrant you know, a student uh, very, very early in my life at the age of eight. And then I kept moving. I was in UK, uh, uh, again, studying, then to Bangalore, different cities of India, small towns. Uh, so obviously there's a general interest in this subject. Uh, in sometime around 2008, there's a lot of interest in remittances, migrant remittances. And I sort of got very interested in this field and I thought I should write, write about it. And then from remittances, I started write, uh, working on migration. And then from migration, I started working on migration history. And then I realized that there's this really fascinating, uh, literally a story to be told uh, of all the movements of India. And as I began to read more, I realized also that a lot has been written on aspects of the history of migration uh, in the West. And they have time periods or you know, they have something like the age of mass migration in Europe or the great migration of African-Americans in, in America. And these are sort of important parts of history. But you can read the standard textbooks of history or you know, uh, standard narratives of modern Indian history uh, without migration being used even once uh, in the book. And so I thought there was a, clearly a gap to be filled uh, and so this book is a combination, of course, of my research and research that others have done over the years and to give in one place uh, a comprehensive uh, view of all the movements that we know of, uh, uh, or at least those uh, that one can have a credible uh, sort of narrative on uh, in one place. So that was the idea of the book. And I thought I should write it for a much wider audience uh, than a purely academic audience. Oh, great. Thank you. Um Obviously, the title itself is something which invites everybody's attention. And I like the way in which you placed it as Moving India, A History of Migration. 
What really came across to me after reading this eminently readable book was the idea that you're bringing in the gays back into India. And as you rightly said, most of what we read today is about migration happening outside India too. Uh, What do you think from an academic point of view, does this change the game of the field? What does it mean for future studies about migration in India? Yeah, this is a huge dichotomy in migration studies. There are people who work on internal migration. There are few. Uh, and there's now a huge, of course, uh, you know, scholarship on diaspora studies uh, from cultural studies, uh, sociology, uh, uh, even economics now. Uh, so there's clearly a mismatch. And in, in terms of scholarship, I would say it's maybe, say, 90, 10, 90% on international migration, 10% on internal migration. But actually, in terms of the actual migrants themselves, you know, it's 90% internal and 10% international. So there's this clear mismatch on uh, between the actual phenomenon and the scholarship on the phenomenon. Uh, and I thought in this, one of the things I very quickly realized in my research was that you can't really see these two uh, as different forms of migration. So international, I mean, you're using the country as a unit, unit of analysis. But if you start looking at regions, uh, then in, very quickly I realized in coastal Odisha, people were migrating to Burma in the past, uh, which was considered to be international migration. Uh, and today they moved to Guj- Gujarat. And the distances are the same, but one was international, one is internal. Uh, I think the implication from an academic point of view, one clear implication is that I've kind of tried to you know, develop this idea of the internal diasporas relative to international diasporas. Uh, and the internal diasporas of India are twice as large. The linguistic diasporas that I've looked at in the book are twice as large as the overall international diaspora. So there are more Bengalis or Gujaratis within India outside their states than there are outside India. Uh, and there are close connections between the internal diasporas and the international diaspora. So you can't understand Kerala's connection with the Gulf, for example, without understanding the Keralites who first moved to Bombay and then were the first recruits in the recruitment offices that opened up in the 30s and 40s for oil companies. So clearly there are a lot of connections between internal migration and international migration. Uh, and from an academic point of view, I think one needs to depart from the nation state as a unit of analysis to, I would say, smaller, more compact sort of regions. Excellent, Chinmay. I mean, this is something I think which is uh, an implication from what you state in your introduction about the four main arguments that you make in this book. And what really struck me was that, apart from the point that you made about the internal versus the international, you also try to revisit the category of circulation, uh, which is a very interesting category in itself, uh, it, especially in the context of the Western Coast, Kerala, and all the other regions that you assign to. Uh, on that ground, I also was curious to know that what is really another as interesting and fascinating aspect of the book is you also bring perhaps a lot of insight into what I would call as the business history or the aspect of the mercantile class, especially looking at Marwadis, especially looking at Gujaratis, different communities in that sense. Um, Is that something that you think would be a kind of pioneering work at the moment or is there a genealogy to that? Yeah, I mean, one thing I've realized in research is that there's, it's really tough to say that anything is pioneering. Everything is built on decades of research and uh, often research is just sort of combining it in a creative way. Uh, and so this literature on mercantile uh, uh, business, I think what I've done is to weave it together in one framework. But, you know, there have been books on Marwadi histories or Sindhi histories and so on. But those histories have been on the community 
or on the business. And so since I was a, a sort of researcher in migration studies, I think the sort of uh, what I've been able to contribute is to tie that narrative, which was always there with the migration side of it. And I realized very quickly why I need to do it. Because uh, during my doctoral research, I looked mainly at labor migration. And I would say much of the research is on labor migration. Uh, uh, and but in, and in India, I think labor gets to study it more than, say, capital. Uh, but I think this this I, you cannot really understand the world of Indian business today without understanding migration and how these specific communities. Uh, I, I point out, you know, that the dominance in the world of big business in a, in the hands of a few communities even today can't be explained uh, without understanding historic uh, migrant networks, migration patterns, and conversely, why, why certain groups have been locked out. Uh, because they've not had these wide sort of spatial networks. So so not not pioneering, but I think I've, I definitely wanted to put this, you know, uh, this idea out there that it's not just you know, laborers that have moved on indenture contracts and so on. There's also this remarkable story of people moving, setting up businesses, often look, being looked down upon, you know, uh, they were often uh, shooed away. Uh, it's also interesting to point this out in the history of empire. We often tend to look at in India, we often tend to look at the British as you know people who came, exploited, and went back. Uh, but often the Indians ourselves or themselves were you know viewed in this way, uh, where they went to other places. So in Burma, the Chettiars were you know seen in worse terms than the British, for example. Uh, so so it's an interesting way of also looking at the history of empire because it was not just British capital flowing around the world. Uh, in some parts, even Indian capital uh, was moving. Great, thank you. Um, I think the main key phrase that comes across the book, uh, which is, of course, encyclopedic in its reach and with full of vignettes and anecdotes and extremely broad in its in, in sweep of covering the entire gamut of such a complex history of migration, is what you beautifully phrased as the Great Indian Migration Wave. Um, would it be, I mean, it would be nice if you can uh, give us a kind of overview of this for the reader, because it's something which you cover across six chapters. Uh, I just wanted to know, is that something that you think is very singular to India? Is that the reason why you coined this phrase as a great Indian migration wave? Um, or is it that you consider it has elements which are also there in other parts of the world? Yeah, so so for the benefit of uh, the listeners, uh, the great Indian migration wave, as I argue, has certain properties. It's male-dominated is remittance-based and semi-permanent. So people move, it's highly circular. People move, they spend often their lifetimes outside, they send back money in the interim, they're mostly men, and then they come back. And this, I argue, I mean, the elements of this, of course, in different countries, Italy to New York, for example, uh, in the late 19th century, uh, Lesotho is another classic example in South Africa, which falls under this pattern. Uh, but India is unique for the sheer scale and for the sheer longevity. Uh, and one of the reasons I thought one needs to give like a phrase or, a, you know, a, like this great Indian migration wave uh, to it is because actually in Indian migration history, we have only two phrases on migration. So if you ask the average person, what, you know, tell us something about migration history, they'll start off firstly with the Aryan migration hypothesis, which is, you know, 2000, 3000 years back. Uh, and there's a whole, whole debate on the, the roots of uh, who who are the Indians. Uh, so that's a famous debate. And so people are aware of the Aryan migration hypothesis. And the second thing that people are aware of is indentured migration. And they know that there's a phase of Indian history. In fact, a lot of people think that 19th century migration was completely indenture. And as I point out in the book, it was, you know, an important part of discussions. 
But quantitatively, it was a very small part of the migrations that took place in the 19th century. Uh, and if you look at nomenclatures in the West, the great migration of you know African Americans in the U.S. or the the age of mass migration, which is usually used. You know, 50 million people from Europe uh, going to U.S. Or now this great urbanization, uh, uh, which is happening in China, of people moving from farms to cities. And I thought that one really needs to have a particular phrase to capture what's happening in India. And I stumbled across this during my doctoral work, that in India, if you look at the Indian map, uh, it's not that all of Indian India is you know on the move, uh, but there are these specific clusters. And these clusters are almost hidden in state level maps of India, but they come out when you see it on a sort of geographic uh, boundary. So much of coastal India has been part of this great Indian migration wave. Much of the uh, Bhojpuri speaking Gangetic Belt, much of the Himalayan economies have been part of it, a bit of Rajasthan and Deccan India has been kind of locked out of, of it. Uh, to some extent, the Northeast has been the recipient, but not so much in terms of uh, out migration. And so I thought the great Indian migration wave is a nice way to uh, cover the span of migrations within India, uh, they're often connected. So people often meet, uh, as I write in the book, uh, you know, uh, Aishwarya Rai's mo families moving from uh, coastal Karnataka, which is part of the Great Indian Migration Wave to Bombay. And the Bachchan family has moved from Eastern UP, which is also a source of the Great Indian Migration Wave. And this family, of course, has a union then later on in uh, Mumbai. So two completely different migration streams, but they have the same roots. And the root is that people are moving in large numbers, whether it's coastal Udupi or Mangalore uh, in the south or eastern UP. The patterns are remarkably the same. That is, you know, this idea of uh, uh, the Great Indian Migration Wave. And what I mentioned is that the impacts have been a bit different. And so Udupi is one of the richest districts of India in the south. Uh, but Gorakhpur or eastern UP has not really come up to that much extent as uh, Udupi. And I have some arguments uh, in this book on uh, why that might. So broadly, the idea has been uh, to present a very, uh, I, I do believe it is unique in terms of scale and persistence uh, at a much smaller scale in Lesotho in South Africa. That would be the closest example. Uh, Italy and so Southern Europe to US is also similar, but that was just for about 30 or 40 years. Whereas in India, we're talking about 150 years. Uh, and in some parts of Bihar, we're talking, I mean, you can trace this history of especially military migration uh, all the way back to the 14th century. Thank you, Chinmay. If I may just take a step back and uh, go back to the question of the structure of the organization of the book, um, yeah. would you be able to explain to us the structure of these six chapters? I mean, in themselves, they obviously came across to me as uh, very rich content-wise and very well organized. But I just wanted to know what was the grand design of the argument that you were sketching through these six chapters? Yeah. Uh, the bulk of the book, so it's called A History of Migration, uh, but really, I mean, when you read it, you'll know uh, that it's mainly a history of the last few centuries, so I would say roughly from 1600 to now. Uh, so I thought I should give some backdrop context to this. And so the first chapter is called Indian Diversity and Global Migrations. I thought I should provide you know, what happened before 1600, uh, but not just before 1600, but also what are the patterns in the past and how does it link it up to the present? So the first chapter is a grand sweep history of 2000 odd years. Uh, and all I did was just to try and see what, what is it that we know. And I'm not an expert on ancient India or medieval India, but I was you know, trying to understand what have historians written on migration. So I kind of pieced together all that one can find on migration uh, in those periods and present it uh, in one particular place. So that's the idea of the first chapter. The second and third chapter are closely related. One is the migration of labor. 
which is the Great Indian Migration Wave. And the other one is uh, the migration of capital. So the migration of labor uh, is what I call the Great Indian Migration Wave. And the migration of capital is the chapters called Merchants and Capital, closely tied with my research. Uh, and then, and, but both these migrations were fairly circular. And then I look at, I thought I should have a chapter on the non-circular migrations, that is people who actually did settle down uh, somewhere else. And so that leads you to the idea of a diaspora building. Uh, but I realized very quickly that the, the biggest literature on this is international diaspora, Indians in Fiji, Indians in Mauritius, Indians in Guyana, Indians in Trinidad, Indians in UK, Indians in US. Uh, there's also this big story of uh, Bengalis in Kerala or Bengalis in Tamil Nadu or Gujaratis in Karnataka, so internal diasporas. So this is a chapter called Diasporas and Development, where I try to see the concept of a diaspora uh, and how it's also shaping uh, the aspirations of people. And also, some there's a little bit out there on assimilation, however, people, however, the kids of these people sort of accepted these societies. Uh, then in the fifth chapter, I look at a completely different form of migration, which is not covered in the previous chapters, and that is involuntary migrations or displacements. And that's also a huge part of Indian history. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot. It's, this is, again, a, a, a field which is outside my personal expertise. But I learned a lot reading that. And I realized that how closely that is also related to many of the things uh, that you talk in the past. So because of partition, which is one of the major uh, displacements, you saw a massive uh, relocation of industrial uh, you know, communities or business communities across the borders. Uh, and in this chapter, I try to also argue that the 20th century in terms of migration uh, should be viewed in terms of three partitions, not one. So we are told of the partition of 1947, uh, but I start with the partition of 1937 when Burma was separated from British India. And I thought that's an important part because that really hit the Indian labor market because there were more than a million Indians working in Burma. Uh, and so that's an important part. And then 1947, of course, is a huge uh, demographic shock. A lot of people died. And then the 1971 partition of Pakistan. And uh, these three partitions had huge impacts on migration, which still linger. So you can't understand the Rohingya crisis without understanding the Burmese-British India connection. Uh, you, you cannot understand uh, the, the, the significance of Northeast migration without understanding Bangladesh, uh, and so and so on. And the last chapter, I try and you know, wrap up all the stuff that we know on the relationship between migration and development. Uh, and so the, broadly, this this includes stuff like the brain drain, trafficking, and all the stuff which I've not been able to incorporate uh, in some of the other chapters. And I thought I should pit it in terms of three voices. So I use the voices of Gandhi, Ambedkar, and Thakre, who represent, in my view, three different positions on, on migration. Uh, so I think, luckily for me, I thought the structure, uh, uh, for me, I thought it worked really well because it, it through the structure, I could cover a lot of movements. The idea of this book was more on uh, sort of width rather than depth. Uh, so, uh, because I really wanted to cover as much as possible. Um, and so hence the structure of these chapters. Thank you, Chinmay. That's a wonderful overview of the structure. <clears throat> Having read the book myself, I must say that one of the things that stands out, apart from all the other amazing uh, inputs and insights that one gets from it, is also its readability. And that uh, makes me temp tempts me to ask you the question, whom did you think would be the targeted reader for this book? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, I'm trained as an academic. Uh, I'm, I'm trained to write fairly boring <laughs> research papers. And uh, this was, uh, I must say, very liberating. Uh, I think, I mean, the choice of the publisher uh, 
and the publishers made it very clear that this cannot be an academic book, which means it cannot have too much of academic language. It has to be able, uh, you know, you should be able to read it, uh, it very generally. But at the same time, I didn't want to make it too general. And so I look at it as a semi-academic sort of language. Uh, I fear that in many parts, uh, uh, there are just far too much of, you know, uh, too many complex words and so on. Uh, but it's been, it's a very, very challenge. It's been challenging, but uh, also very liberating and refreshing. Uh, because when, you, when you're trained to write like an academic, uh, you know, when in, in this genre, I think uh, uh, you can take, I think you cannot, it, it allows you to be more creative in, in the usage of language. It allows you to be more, uh, you can also compare different sort of, uh, ideas in a more uh, open way. Uh, so broadly, I, I really enjoyed writing the book. And the target audience I had in mind was uh, pretty much the general reader. Uh, I, In general, I feel it's a good thing. Uh, my parents are not part of this field. So if I can write in a way that my parents can understand, I think that, that's, uh, I, I feel like I've accomplished something. Thank you very much, Inmay. That was excellent. And I must say that this is not something often that you find um, that when you read a book, it not only appeals to the academic audience, but it appeals to all kinds of audience. So I take it as um, a huge achievement from your side that the book is accessible to everybody, especially on a topic as contentious as migration. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things which also struck me as a reader, because I also teach South Asian studies here, one of the only courses in South Asian history in Central European University, Budapest, is that... Um, mm. um, when we speak about South Asian studies, uh, we generally speak, as you said, one of the most important events that is spoken about is a partition. Uh, and definitely, as you said, that the migration history related to partition does get a lot of attention. But what your book, at least to me as a teacher of South Asian studies, does is to open up new windows, which I personally think have not been hitherto explored. Uh, would you would you probably shed some light to me and to potential readers and students of South Asian studies across the world on what kind of opportunities are there for researchers and students to look at South Asian studies through the histories of the different migrations that you chart out in this book, please? Yeah, I think one hugely unexplored field, uh, this is something I realized when I was writing the book, uh, is the dislocation of capital due to partition. I think we, we've the partition literature in particular, or the birth of you know uh, the sovereign states of South Asia today, <laughs> has been seen I think through the lens of people movement uh, and uh, politics in the sense how did, for example, the Muslim representation in the in the Muslim League and then in uh, the Punjabi representation, uh, and then you know uh, which el which new elites uh, grabbed political power in both the states. But the story of what happens to industrialists, what happens to even local business people, uh, I feel has not been sufficiently explored. Uh, just a few studies. Uh, and these studies are basically post facto. They don't really see how the, the partition in particular knocked out or changed business strategies, business communities, and so on. And at least anecdotally, we know, I mentioned in the book, the Pakistani business class came from a very narrow band of business communities who migrated uh, and I would maybe there's a literature in Pakistan which have you know uh, which does this and I think South Asian studies would work better uh, if the legacy of capital and what partitioned it to that is better explored uh, especially not not in terms of capital of the politicians but in terms of the industrialists uh, because we know 
that you know state business relations are a huge part of uh, the development story of any country uh, and i feel in comparative south asian studies i am yet to come across i think you know research which shows how state business relationships systematically differed over common across south asian countries so definitely on the side of uh, capital apart from that i think also the linkages i think one of the things uh, i write in the book is uh, in a way the partition of 47 especially on the eastern side uh, there was a lot of connections with the partition of burma in the sense uh, the civil service officers uh, who worked in rehabilitation efforts uh, got their training in the refugee crisis of burma in 1942 when the japanese invaded them and so they were like the marwadi relief associations played a huge role in re- re- rehabilitation effort uh, refugee um, uh, uh, you know camps uh, management and so on and it's often underscored how much how these first skills which developed helped later on in the massacres and the aftermath of the, the big partition of 1947 uh, so there were interesting connections before uh, in the in the field of refugee studies because partition is also then closely associated with refugee studies uh because often 1947 is seen as the biggest refugee crisis ever and it's seen to come out of nowhere but there there were there was definitely one refugee crisis 5 years before partition of 1947 and i feel the connection between that and the eventual crisis uh is interesting and so it's it's not the case that nehru for instance uh, or the political leaders did not know what a refugee crisis looked like they knew exactly what it looked like because they had seen one 5 years back great Um, <clears throat> I think it's also perhaps important for uh, listeners who are students ranging from undergraduate student to PhD scholars to perhaps also get a glimpse of your theoretical framework in the book. Um and I think it was important for me to also see that there are some key concepts that come into your analysis and as you said uh, earlier not only connecting labor with capital um at least living in this part of the world for the last 9 years i've realized how much of interest uh, is diaspora as a category for academicians of different disciplines and um inclinations so would you like to tell us what do you think is the central concept for you in this book yeah that's that's a good question i think uh, i would say i i don't borrow heavily on established theoretical frameworks which social, you know social scientists typically use uh economists would have a neoclassical sort of you know so migration occurs because of wage differentials that's the theoretical framework of uh, economists i depart from that i think that's too simplistic in the sense it doesn't explain why uh you know i mean madhya pradesh and bihar 100 years back were fairly poor madhya pradesh was closer to bombay but you find had more mig- so standard economic theories would predict that you know economic migra- uh, the migration from madhya pradesh to bombay should have been much more than from bihar to bombay but you saw the reverse uh i think if at all there is a central uh, you know a theoretical framework uh and there is one it is based on networks uh and i feel one thing is that india tends to live in communities uh and so i i do think communities are a very useful unit of analysis in india uh, i mean caste of course but if you add religion to that so then community is slightly more expansive word uh and if you look every community has like a circle of contacts and migration basically increases or decreases these contacts uh and because of strong endogamy these communities are you know even when they move and they interact with others the essential source of capital information know-how 
is still, you know, there's a huge thing which is floating within these community networks. Uh, and so for me, that's remarkable. Whether I looked at labor or capital, that was the central theme. That is, whether it was the Marwadi moving from Rajasthan to Calcutta or the the, the migrant, the, the Muslim weavers migrating from uh, UP to Bhivandi in Maharashtra, I thought both were using their community networks to come up in life. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is how I would say one of the reasons why you see you know, inequality in India is that the sort of, uh, in a sense, more privileged communities historically have had a much more wider spatial network, uh, migrant network, uh, enabling them to access more information, more. Now. So even without, so I think, I mean, what, what's, what I'm pointing towards is that uh, you can now have a theory of discrimination of theory of inequality actually without discrimination or without overt discrimination. Uh, it's just uh, through networks and, you know, the, so the social capital built across these different spatial scales that enable communities uh, to do much better than others, even if this direct sort of oppression uh, disappears. So that's definitely, so I would say broadly a network-based argument is uh, at some level a part of the theoretical core. Then there's, I would say, in there's been some theorization about the methods and the sources. And uh, I would say out here, the, the framework I use is that if one has to look at internal and international migration together, I argue that the, in India, especially the district should be the unit of regional analysis. Just because it's amenable to research, you could argue, it's, you could argue for some smaller scales. Uh, <clears throat> I also argue that you need to look at migration from both, especially modern migration, both contemporary and past in, in large linkages. Uh, and as a theoretical framework in India, uh, one needs one needs to have a theory as to why circular migration has been uh, so dominant. And uh, here in the book, I argue that uh, gender norms have something to do with it. That is, there have been norms on women's mobility. Uh, so broadly, I think what I'm trying to do in this book, of course, wage differentials matter. You know, I mean, the standard economic theory of migration does matter, but uh, it's not enough to explain the world of migration today. And so using that plus networks, uh, plus the variations in norms on gender, uh, I think, you know, uh, explain some of the migration patterns that we've uh, seen today. Excellent. <clears throat> Chinmay, if I may come back to the larger global context in which uh, migration is discussed today, especially in Central Europe, uh, yeah. in the last two years, as we all know, this is indeed the most divisive and volatile issue in public discourse. Um, and I don't think your book could have been more timely, especially because of its accessibility and and the wonderful style in which it is written. I was just wondering, what would you be uh, guessing or what would be your prediction as, as a social scientist, as a historian, um, looking at what is happening in Central and Europe, Central and Eastern Europe in, in particular, with regard to migration as a political issue and about this mapping up similarly in the Indian subcontinent. So in another 10 years, do you think migration would indeed become the most divisive factor in Indian society? Hmm. That's, a, that's a great question. Uh, let, me, let me talk of Europe first. Uh, I, I think the, what the world that we're seeing right now uh, is going, it's, it's on a particular swing of like an ideological cycle. Uh, and if you start seeing the world like that, uh, an ideological cycle which 
you know, uh, earlier, I mean, we had this one wave of globalization in the past 1870 to 1914 or thereabouts. And then again, one which came about. And this is basically a backlash uh, on globalization. Uh, I mean, the backlash and globalization in the full spectrum that is, you know, uh, good straight capital flows and people and uh, maybe even ideas, but especially on the people front, there's a massive backlash against immigration. Uh, my sense is because, of course, in Europe, a part of that is based on, uh, you know, Islamophobia. So there's also religious dimension to it. Uh, but my sense is that uh, it also boils down to this idea of rising inequality. Uh, one of the great puzzles is why left-wing politics, for example, has waned at the same time as income inequality has risen in much of Europe uh, and so on. And the answer, of course, is that there's someone else to blame, the immigrants to blame. Uh, and so anti-immigration is politically very attractive uh, today. I believe this would eventually subside in Europe as efforts you know, finally pitch in towards actually doing something about the inequality. Uh, and then only, I mean, once that focus shifts from the outside, because what will happen is some of this might uh, give way in the sense uh, countries might close up their borders to people, but they will realize that the inequality is still there. Uh, and then they will finally turn their attention to internal problems. And so then after a point, they will require, they're also aging societies and they'll, you know, they realize that they require uh, labor. And my sense is then they'll be more open to immigration. And we've seen this before uh, in the interwar period, a massive close down of borders. Indians were denied entry in Canada, US and so many parts of the world. So this is not new. Trump is just a manifestation of uh, anti-globalization uh, backlash, which has happened in the past uh, as well. In India, it's of course more tricky. Uh, in the book, I mentioned that typically regions which have themselves not had large outmigration, like Maharashtra, uh, have been hostile to immigrants compared to, say, Gujarat or Punjab. Uh, now, just after writing the book, there were some protests, anti-migrant protests in Gujarat, which would uh, tell you that uh, this theory is not solid. But my my understanding is that this is an outlier. I don't think Gujarat is going to become very anti-migrant in the near future because Gujaratis are you know, they're all over the world and they understand the benefits of migration. The big fault line in India is going to be north-south. Uh, and uh, the south has moved ahead of hinterland north uh, in many, many ways, especially demographically. So just like Europe need, is aging and it needs uh, somebody to sort of man all the, uh, especially the lower-rung jobs, in India, in the next 40 years, there's going to be a massive wave of north-to-south migration, which has already begun. Uh, and so my guess is, is that this will also mean linguistic changes, uh, and hence the traditional north-south divide, especially in political battles, has been on the basis of language, and I think that can only intensify. Uh, there are two ways it can go. One is if there are enough Hindi speakers in the south, people might even start changing or respecting, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. So there is a fault line in India, and it only makes sense to convince people that you know uh, migration. Even the South Indians have migrated to Southeast Asia to the Gulf. And uh, often it, that migration has worked for them. And so if India needs to grow or develop, uh, this migration is a very important part of that story. And uh, xenophobia against migrants, you know, is, is not going to serve anyone uh, very well. Uh, at the same time, in terms of a public spirit, I think migrants ourselves have to have some responsibilities. Uh, and you just cannot go to a, another place and disrespect local traditions. Uh, you can't go, if you're a Hindi speaker, you can't go to Canada and disrespect Canada speakers. I think that's the least that migrants uh, should keep in mind. So if possible, learn the local language. If it's too difficult, at least don't uh, disrespect it. 
Thank you, Chinmay. I mean, this begs me to ask the question about my own home state, Kerala, and I'm from Cochin. And mm-hmm. what really struck me when I went there last time was to see how some parts of Kerala had almost majority Hindi or Bengali speakers in certain villages to the extent that the boards of the small grocery shops were written in Hindi. Uh, the local people actually started conversing in Hindi. So I have two questions here. One is the standard, uh, let's say, the popular idea of the Malayali, uh, the Keralite being mobile, adapting to different environments, being the eternal migrant, so to say. And now you find in the last five or ten years a huge influx of people from other parts of India or even, as you said, Nepal or Bangladesh coming into Kerala. And there is also pockets of resistance. The similar kind of discourse I find in Hungary or other countries about outsiders, the others coming up too. Now, is this a paradox in the one sense that the Malayali is supposed to be open to so many cultures for millennia and centuries? And now, just like what has happened with Brexit... Uh, we seem yeah. to be, you know, getting cocooned in our own shells and becoming more parochial. Yeah, I think fundamentally, uh, I don't know how true this hypothesis would be, but human beings are quite skeptical of outsiders in general. And so it takes some extraordinary efforts to, you know, uh, be welcoming of foreigners. This is not unique to Kerala. Uh, Southern Italy was a huge hub of out-migration to US. And after the war, uh, Italy then itself received uh, immigrants from Northern Africa. And so you had a similar story of, you know, uh, it's called replacement migration. So because a particular class of people have risen up through migration, there are certainly a dearth of jobs and people, other migrants move to fill it up. Uh, I would be, of course, I think uh, one of the things migrants love about Kerala when they go there, why they choose Kerala over other states is uh, of, uh, you know, very progressive labor laws. Uh, and so Kerala is also seen as a model state for migrants themselves. And so it's a very attractive destination for migrants to go there. I mean, they get, you know, schooling, the kids are, the kids go to school in their own languages. And uh, so so that's the, so it's only going to attract more migration. Uh, I think there will be a, there, there will always be some resentment, but I think good politics would show the mirror saying that this is how you're treated in the Persian Gulf. And it doesn't make sense to do the same uh, to others who are who are coming here. Um, so that yeah, I mean, there's a potential fault line. My my hope and guess is that it's not going to be it's not going to take a very ugly turn uh, in Kerala in particular because the memory of out migration is so strong today. I mean, the Kerala still sends a lot of people to the Gulf and around the world. So that memory is being so strong. I think there will always be this contradiction, and people will reflect and you know uh, uh, say that uh, if we even we. We are migrants, so we should use the same standards as how we would like to be uh, judged. Okay, I know the time is running out. Uh, my last question would be then, um, having read this wonderful book, one can't but help ask the author of this book, what would be your next one? Uh, because I think as a first book, this is personally for me, my judgment is that it's a wonderful success. Uh, and I'm sure that this is being read and discussed across the world. Uh, Chinmay, would you like to tell me and the listeners of this podcast, uh, what are your future research mm-hmm. projects, please? Yeah, I'm working on two strands of research. Uh, I don't know if they will become book projects in the in the future. Uh, one is linked on business history because I'm now based in a management school, uh, and so I do research in business history. Uh, I do some aspects on the history of marketing and now the history of women in 20th century Indian business. The history of business has uh, left out women in the story, 
Uh, and it's a very daunting task because when I started, I didn't have any names, but now I have a lot of names, but I don't know who they are. So uh, it's, it's a very interesting project of uh, women in the world of Indian business in the 20th century. Uh, so that's one, the business history aspect, uh, aspects of marketing, the history of consumption, advertising, and so on. Uh, the second track of research is on urbanization. So I thought that was a natural stepping point after studying migration to study the cities of India. Uh, and so I teach a course on urban economics, um, which tries to relate some of this, uh, but I'm fascinated by cities. And so uh, if at all a book project materializes, I think it should be on one of these projects, one of either the business history aspect or the urban history aspect. Uh, fantastic. So just to explain to our listeners once again, uh, you were listening to a conversation with Chinmay Tumbe, who is a professor of Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad, and the author of a very readable book called Moving India, History of Migration in India, published by Penguin in 2018. Thank you very much, Chinmay, for taking time off your busy schedule and engaging in a wonderful, enriching conversation, giving us uh, further insights on the framing of this book, on its implications and your overall argument. On behalf of all the listeners of New Books Network podcast and on my own personal behalf, I wish you the very best and uh, hope to have you back on the program soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.